Matthew chapter 25. This is the last sermon by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning I want to begin by reading verses 31 to 46. This is what Jesus said. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Well, there's a film that my dad introduced to me at a very young age. It's a film that my mother cannot stand. It's a film that dad and I are very fond of. It's the 1993 classic Groundhog Day. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen it, uh, it's based on the, um, a man by the name of Phil Connors, who's a weatherman in this particular film. It's played by Bill Murray. And uh, he finds himself reliving the same day over and over again. And he keeps waking up every single morning and it is February 2nd, Groundhog Day, and he is the only one that seems to notice. Everyone just continues about their February February 2nd regime and every time he kind of comments this to other people and lets them know, hey, have you noticed we're reliving the same day? They think he's mad. (laughs) And it's quite frustrating for him in the front end of the movie. But with time, Phil Connors realises that he is a man who can live without consequences. Because for him, there actually is no tomorrow. So he starts doing a few things he wouldn't typically do. He, he robs a money truck to begin with. He, he starts eating whatever he wants. He has no worries about cholesterol or anything like that. He, um, he finds an annoying old schoolmate in the street. Um, Ned Ryson, I believe is his name. Knocks him out cold. He starts womanising. And then one particular evening, he decides it's a great idea to drive on the railroad. And he comes to the conclusion, he has this kind of epiphany moment. He says, hey, if if there is no tomorrow, then there truly are no consequences. I can do whatever I want. 
Now, as hilarious as that film is, and as much as my father and I have quoted it to each other over the years, the sad reality is that our increasingly secular society has adopted something of a Groundhog Day mentality. We live as though there is no tomorrow, as if everything we do now is of no eternal consequences. Now, this didn't happen overnight, but was gradually introduced into our Western culture. I'm, uh, I'm certainly no philosopher, but off the back of a period known as the Enlightenment and some of the philosophical schools of thought that appeared in the 18th and 19th century, some of the humanistic philosophy, we've begun to water down our understanding of things eternal. Dutch theologian uh, Herman Barvink, he summed it up this way. This is what he had to say. He said, if human sentiment had the final say about the doctrine of eternal punishment, it would certainly be hard to maintain and even today find few defenders. First, it needs to be gratefully acknowledged that since the 18th century, the idea of humaneness and the sense of human sympathy have had a powerful awakening and have put an end to the cruelty that used to prevail, especially in the field of criminal justice. And he's talking about the abolition of instruments of torture there. But he says, no one, however, can be blind to the reality that this humanitarian viewpoint also brings its own imbalances and dangers. The mighty turnabout that has occurred can be described in a single sentence. Whereas before, the mentally ill were treated as criminals, now criminals are regarded as mentally ill. Before that time, every abnormality was viewed in terms of sin and guilt. Now, all ideas of guilt crime, responsibility, culpability, and the like, are robbed of their reality. The sense of right and justice, of the violation of law and of guilt, are seriously weakened to the extent that the norm of all these things is not found in God, but shifted to the opinions of human beings and society. Herman Barvink, the man who wrote that, died in 1921. And some 100 years on, the problem is even worse now. You can trace it in our postmodern academy but even at street level you hear it cried out by the masses don't we yolo you only live once and as you pick up the scriptures you'll see that this kind of societal level mockery concerning eternal consequences and the final judgment was predicted by the apostle peter in second peter 3 he says scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires they will say where is the promise of his coming The Apostle Peter knew this would happen. But what Jesus tells us here in Matthew 25, in his last sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, is that one day he will return. And this time it will not be the humble entrance of a baby in a manger, but the triumphant, glorious entrance of a king. And unlike the justice systems of our day where we have um, a kind of separation of powers design where the people who write the law are different from the people who judge the law, what we have on this day is not only will Jesus reveal himself as supreme king but also supreme judge. He's not a local magistrate. He's not a state attorney. Nor is he one of seven justices in the High Court of Australia. His jurisdiction, Jesus says, is the nation's. He will call all people to account, all people from all nations, from every time in history. And the description that Jesus gives us here is a little bit baffling. It's it's a bit foreign, the metaphor that he used there. He's talking about separating the sheep from the goats. What do we do with that? Well, this is a description that would have been very common in Jesus. 
this day where many people were shepherds by trade. Now, we would kind of expect, you know, like in some sort of court system, you know, you'd have a a court clerk, maybe a bailiff and a jury, but Jesus says, no, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And what he's talking about there is that if a shepherd had a flock and it included both sheep and goats, um, because goats didn't tolerate the cold weather as well as the sheep, he would have to separate them. So in the colder hours of the evening, uh, both could manage the cold conditions. And so this is a very familiar metaphor. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus used this kind of separation language in his teaching. We learn in earlier in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 13, he talks about separating the wheat from the tares. The wheat will go to be stored in the barn and the tares burned. Or he uses a fishing analogy to say that when a net gets drawn in, the, the good fish will be placed into containers and the bad fish will be thrown away. And so when we come across these separation teachings from Jesus, probably the most striking thing for us is that ultimately Jesus only recognises two categories. Sheep, goats, wheat, tares, good fish, bad fish, those who know him and those who don't. Those who go on to inherit eternal life and those who will go to eternal punishment. Matthew Henry said it this way, this separation will be so exact that the most inconsiderable saints shall not be lost in the crowd of sinners, nor the most, nor the most plausible sinner hid in the crowd of saints. And so it begs the question for us immediately, right? Okay, well, who goes where? I mean, what's the entrance criteria for eternal life? These things are pretty heavy, Well, that's what Jesus explains for us next. Let's read verses 34 to 40 again. He says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That there is our entrance criteria. Now, and as you read through it, I bet you're probably going to have one of two responses. You're either going to have a really big objection or a really big question, okay? Objection number one, wait a minute. This sounds like Jesus is preaching a works-based gospel, right? As if Jesus is somehow saying, oh, you you want eternal life? Okay, here you go. Here's a big to-do list that will enable you to merit your own salvation. You go and visit enough prisoners, go and welcome enough strangers. Then on the last day, I'll kind of measure what you've done on the scales and see which way they tip. If you just feed enough hungry hungry mouths, there's a fair income chance you'll be allowed in. I mean, is that what Jesus is saying here? Is this a works-based gospel? No. No, of course it's not. The Apostle Paul said it well in Galatians 2.16. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Here's the kicker, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. 
Paul is saying that the way we come into right legal standing with God is by believing in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now, although Paul makes that explicitly clear for us in Galatians, we actually don't have to go galloping into Paul's epistles to find that teaching, as though somehow Paul is always trying to rescue us from the legalistic teachings of Jesus, as some would have us believe. No, Jesus makes actually the same point as Paul. He just uses very different language. Look at verse 34 again. He says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Let me ask you this. Have you ever earned an inheritance? Have you ever merited an inheritance? No, that an inheritance come to you as a gift. And it says, this gift was prepared for you before the foundation of the world. That is, before you'd ever done a single good work, this was secured for you. Salvation is of the Lord. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone. And if that's not enough to convince you, just look at the reaction of the sheep. You don't hear them saying, well, yes, Lord, um, your calculations are on point. Uh, I've been keeping score my entire Christian journey. Um, I'm perfectly aware of just how many people I've served because I knew that one day you were going to measure them all and that would be the basis of whether or not I'd be allowed entrance into your kingdom. Is that how they respond? No, what we get from the sheep is they're in shock. (laughs) Look at how they describe it. They're like, oh, (laughs) helping you in prison. Lord, when did we do that? You see, they don't (laughs) approach the throne room with a resume. They're just in love with their redeemer. Salvation is by faith alone. But let me be loud and clear here, because this is Jesus's point. Even though we are saved... By faith alone, true faith is never alone. True faith always shows itself to be true and genuine by the works that accompany it. As I heard on a documentary that Alice and I watched earlier this week, works are not the root of our faith, but they are the fruit of our faith. And because there is such an intimate relationship here between faith and works, Jesus can say without any hesitation that the sheep inherit eternal life because of their works because he knows of that intimate relationship between the two. Now, that is sound Protestant theology, okay? On that last day, your works will demonstrate that you love Jesus or your lack of works will testify that you don't. Even Martin Luther, right, the great proponent of justification by faith, knew this to be true. This is what he said, and if you know who Luther is, you'll know just how potent these words are. He said, oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good works incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done them and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. So that's the big objection we might have. But I imagine there's some of us who don't have a big objection, but just a big question. And that is, who are the least of these, my brothers? When Jesus mentions these acts of service, who are they to be towards? Now, upon first hearing, we might hear the least of these, my brothers, and we probably have in mind the, the lowly, the, the despised, the, the poor. And I actually think that's a really sound grasp of what Jesus is saying here. Although I would push back gently and say, I think it's just a bit incomplete. Um, The key in understanding who these people are is that kind of descriptor on the back end there that describes them as 
my brothers. The least of these, my brothers. If you do a word study on my brothers on the lips of Jesus and in the writings of Paul, every single time, that's going to come up as meaning fellow Christian. Jesus is in effect saying that the yardstick with respect to our works is our love and service towards our fellow Christian. So perhaps the, 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 the visiting that, and <clears throat> that Jesus has in mind here is maybe less about visiting unbelieving inmates in prison, though I think that's a very noble Christian ministry that I would encourage. He may have more in mind visiting persecuted Christians who've been imprisoned. That's probably the category he has in his mind. Perhaps the feeding the hungry is less about feeding the poor, generally speaking. Again, though that is a very noble Christian endeavour, Jesus probably has in mind the kind of hospitality that we show to our fellow fellow Christian. Perhaps a missionary is passing through town and we might offer to show them hospitality. That's probably the category Jesus has in mind. In other words, what I'm saying is we should probably view this text in Matthew 25, kind of through the lens of Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. This is what Paul says in Galatians 6, 10. He says, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. There's the kind of global expression. But then here's what he says, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. If, if, there's, a, if there's an emphasis in this text, it is our fellow Christian. Now that changes things, doesn't it? Jesus is saying that our eternal state is bound up with our love and service toward our fellow Christian. That that the marker of whether we truly love Jesus is evident in our posture towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what he says, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You're Your love for your fellow Christian is an expression of your love for me. It lets you know where your heart is towards Jesus. And this is the same kind of warning we get from the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 4, verses 20 to 21. This is what he says. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. You cannot love Jesus and hate his bride. I know that's an anecdote that gets thrown around, but you just can't in light of the scriptures. So let me, let me ask you this morning, if you say you love Jesus, is that demonstrated in the way you treat your fellow Christian? It's something we have to ponder this morning. If If that's not true of you, in light of our passage today, we have to ask the question, do you even know him? Do you know Jesus? Ponder that seriously today, because if that's not true of you, you don't truly know Jesus. A very different eternal fate awaits. Summing up that um, emphasis on our brothers and sisters in Christ, D.A. Carson makes this comment. He says, by far... The best interpretation is that Jesus' brothers are his disciples. The fate of the nations will be determined by how they respond to Jesus' followers, who, missionaries or not, are charged with spreading the gospel and do so in the face of hunger, thirst, illness and imprisonment. Good deeds done to Jesus' followers, even the least of them, are not only works of compassion and morality, but reflect where people stand in relation to the kingdom and to Jesus himself. 
So what of the other eternal of fate? Verses 41 to 46. Let's read those again. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We now come to the terrifying eternal consequences that those who don't know Jesus will suffer. It's a place the Bible calls hell. And as I alluded to earlier, the moment I even mention the word hell, it's going to strike a very tender chord in the minds of Westerners. But cultural tolerance is not the yardstick by which we determine truth. Dr. Kim, uh, Tim Keller, I should say, he pastored in New York City for many years and he describes one such uh, reaction he had with a woman in his congregation. This is what he had to say. In one of my after-service discussions, a woman told me that the very idea of judging, a judging God was offensive. I said, why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? She looked puzzled. I continued, I respectfully urge you to consider your cultural location when you find the Christian teaching about hell offensive. I went on to point out that secular Westerners get upset by the Christian doctrines of hell, but they find biblical teaching about turning the other cheek and forgiving enemies appealing. I then asked her to consider how someone from a very different culture sees Christianity. In traditional societies, the teaching about turning the other cheek makes absolutely no sense. It offends people's deepest instincts about what is right. For them, the doctrine of a God of judgment, however, is no problem at all. That society is repulsed by aspects of Christianity that Western people enjoy and are attracted by the aspects that secular Westerners can't stand. So we can't let our Western preferences determine our view of hell. Like all doctrine, we need to turn once again to the pages of Scripture where we find the historical position of the church that hell is a place of eternal conscious punishment. Jesus himself, the most compassionate of us all, who talks about hell more than anyone, described it this way, that it is a place of outer darkness, a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, where their worm does not die, and is a place of unquenchable fire. And then one of the most confronting passages we have is in Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 through 11. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Eternal 
conscious punishment. This is not a place that you visit for 23 minutes, come back and write a book about. This is not some temporary washroom that purges you of your sins and then allows you to enter heaven at some other later date. No, Hebrews chapter 9 makes it clear. It is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment. Luke chapter 16 describes the the fixing of a chasm that no one can cross. There are no second chances. Now, yes, the language we read is no doubt symbol laden. I don't think many people would deny that, but the the realities to which the symbols point be far more terrifying again. The fact that it's symbolic language should not lessen our view of hell, but heighten it. This is eternal conscious punishment. Now, there has been pushback on this definition by even the most conservative uh, evangelical circles. Um, Such people are happy to say, look, hell is indeed conscious punishment, but surely it's not eternal. And the view that kind of pushes back on the eternality of hell is a view that's the umbrella term would be annihilationism. And basically they would say that people will suffer for a while, but then they shall cease to exist. They will be annihilated, as it were. And sometimes in defending this view, they'll appeal to the love of God that it would be contrary to God's nature for him to inflict such a punishment. Sometimes they'll appeal to scriptures like 2 Peter 3, 7, which speak of the destruction of the, of the wicked as if the word destruction implies termination. In fact, you can hear the, um, you can hear the cry from such views that, let's be honest, they pull on our heartstrings. We want them to be true. Listen to these words from Clark Pinnock. He says, let me say at the outset that I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God would who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than God himself, at least by any ordinary moral standards. And by the gospel itself, does the one who told us to love our enemies intend to wreak vengeance on his own enemies for all eternity? You can hear the heart cry there. We we don't want hell to be eternal. That pulls on our heartstrings. I hear where he's coming from. Now, I could give you uh, literature that um, gives a very thoroughgoing rebuttal uh, to that particular point of view. I highly recommend a book by D.A. Carson called The Gagging of God. But at the end of the day, the argument that the heart of the argument is this. Eternal means eternal. And the second you want to strip hell of its eternality, you have to be consistent and do the same thing to heaven. Will you say that heaven is only for a short while? Look at verse 46. It describes the two outcomes in parallel. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It is the same word. Okay, then what of the charge that eternal punishment is contrary to the very nature of a loving God? What do we say to that? Well, listen, comments like that only reveal that we really don't know who God is. God is holy. He is unlike us. And as we said at Easter, to sin against him is cosmic 
treason. Jim Boyce said it well that what makes sin an infinite evil is that it is against an infinite God. Oh, it's true. We, we learn in Ezekiel 33 that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that the wicked would turn from their way and live. Yes and amen. But for the glory of his name and to uphold his holiness and justice, he will demonstrate his wrath. In fact, to deny his wrath and his holiness and his justice is simultaneously to diminish any biblical understanding of his love. When Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't merely the victim of some cruel method of Roman torture. He voluntarily underwent and absorbed the furious wrath of his father on our behalf. Romans 5.9 says it this way. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. What does Jesus save you from on the cross? The wrath of God. You see, God's love reaches its climax in the cross of Jesus because it shows us the very lengths he was willing to go to to save us. As one theologian put it, God's love and his wrath kiss at the cross. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this. Let me ask you, what will it be for you? Will God's wrath come down on you Or will you believe and receive the finished work of Jesus who bore his father's wrath for you? Which will it be? So what else do we do with this doctrine of hell? Firstly, and um, this may be difficult to hear, but needs to be said. The doctrine of hell is at least in some sense a consolation to anyone who has been the victim of the worst kinds of dehumanizing sin. See, one of the pushbacks to, <clears throat> to a God of judgment is that people assume that if God is a God of judgment, then surely his people will kind of follow in his footsteps and, and uh, do a bit of judging of their own. And we've seen some very misguided Christians uh, follow that line of thought in the past, that God's people would be marked by retaliation and violence if their God is a God of judgment. But the fact is the opposite is true. You see, God reminds his people throughout the scriptures that they don't have to retaliate. He says, because um, one day I'll do it on your behalf. Romans 12, 9. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. We even see a a similar cry for the, the triumphant church, those who have already gone to be with Jesus in Romans 6, 9 and 10. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? That's coming from the triumphant church. Now, that might sound barbaric to us with our Western ears on, but to Christians in places like the Middle East and China, those words offer, in some sense, a layer of comfort. Furthermore, just just imagine if, if God went up to a kind of unrepentant Hitler or an unrepentant Joseph Stalin and just gave him a light smack on the wrist, would, would that make God any more worthy of our devotion? 
Would that satisfy our longings for justice? Would that make God more worthy of our love? Miroslav Volf put it this way. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. Listen, we can, we can trust Jesus to be the perfect judge. I, um, Alice and I recently uh, subscribed to Netflix and um, I've been re-watching an old classic called Shawshank Redemption. If you haven't seen it, Shawshank Redemption is about a man named Andy Dufresne who was falsely accused of two counts of murder and given a double life sentence and sent to a place called Shawshank Prison where he suffered the most horrible kinds of mistreatment. And after 19 years of unjust suffering, a new inmate enters the prison, a man by the name of Tommy Williams, and he is sent to Shawshank Prison as well. But what they soon discover is that this new prisoner has evidence that Andy is in fact innocent. He, he's found some stuff out from another inmate. And so Andy's excited. After 19 years of unjust suffering, he says, Warden, please let me have another trial. I can get out of here. But what does the warden do? He, he sends Andy down to do two months of solitary confinement and has Tommy Williams executed. And this is like one of the most frustrating, enraging and heartbreaking, heartbreaking parts of the entire film. And it just, it just leaves you wrestling in your chair going, when will this man be vindicated? Like, when will this, this corrupt warden and all these vicious guards come to justice? Listen, you need to know that there will never be a decision that needs to be appealed when Jesus is the judge. There are no false verdicts. There are no unfair trials in the courtroom of Jesus. He always has all the evidence and he will always measure out justice perfectly so that each will receive what is due. Justice will be done and it will be seen to be done. And we see this in some sense, and these scriptures are terrifying, but we see this in some sense through some of the words of Jesus. Look at Luke 12, for example. He says, And that servant, this is verses 47 to 48, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. You can see... Even amongst those he calls goats, there is a, an exacting out. And everything that Jesus does will be just. We hear it again in Matthew 11, verses 20 to 24, earlier in this gospel. It says, Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chirazan! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Jesus is the perfect judge. 
One in the band, come and join me. Secondly, what else do we do with this doctrine of hell? And I'm sure it's apparent from what we've looked at already. What do we do with it? We tell people about it. We warn people about this place. When did we get so polite that we stopped including hell in our gospel proclamation? Now, I'm sure we have seen abuses where people hold up signs in the street that say nothing but turn or burn. I get it. There's been abuses, but that does not excuse us from including hell in our gospel, <coughs> pardon me, from including hell in our gospel proclamation. I'm a very young preacher with much to learn, but if the passage you've been assigned to teach mentions hell, don't duck it. Let's not water these things down in our community groups, in discipling our children, sharing the gospel over the back fence, preaching a sermon. We can't duck these truths because Jesus surely didn't. We need to tell people what the Bible says about hell. So much more I could say about that, but in closing today, I want to share a story with you. It's a little excerpt from a book by Leonard Ravidhill, and I'm indebted to my friend Gareth, who showed this to me a number of years ago and um, passed it on again this week. Let me close with this story. It says, Charlie Peace was a criminal. Laws of God or man curbed him not. Finally, the law caught up with him and he was condemned to death. On the fatal morning in Armley Jail, Leeds, England, he was taken on the death walk. Before him went the prison chaplain, routinely and sleepily reading some Bible verses. The criminal touched the preacher and asked what he was reading. The consolation of religion was the reply. Charlie Peace was shocked at the way he professionally read about hell. Could a man be so unmoved under the very shadow of the scaffold as to lead a fellow human there and yet, dry-eyed, read of a pit that has no bottom into which this fellow must fall? Could this preacher believe the words that there is an eternal fire that never consumes its victims and yet slide over the phrase without a tremor? Is a man human at all who can say with no tears, you will be eternally dying and yet never know the relief that death brings? All this was too much for Charlie Peace, so he preached. Listen to this on the eve of hell sermon. Sir, addressing the preacher, if I believed what you and the church of God say that you believe, even if England were covered with broken glass from coast to coast, I would walk over it, if need be, on hands and knees and think it worthwhile living just to save one soul from an eternal hell like that. We need to warn people about hell.